You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome to episode 229, I think, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today is Nathan Gilmore, who's an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, did I get your title right? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm good to go, man. Ready to rock. Unfortunately, David Grubbs couldn't be with us today. He had a medical commitment, I believe, although he's fine. Nobody worry about him. Uh, so we brought in a ringer, uh, Dr. Todd Pedler, who's an associate professor, no, full professor of physics at Luther College in uh, Decorah, Iowa. Todd, I got you wrong. Yeah, oh, but well, you corrected it, so that's all. All is good. <laughs> like, how are you doing? Matters. I'm doing great. Um, Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, anytime. Well, our episode today is on nonviolence and pacifism, but I guess first we should plug the other shows on the network. Todd, why don't we start with Book of Nature, which is back after a sizable absence. Sizable, yeah, yeah. Um, we just dropped an episode uh, two days ago on consciousness, um, and I've got another one ready to go on the Flat Earth Movement uh, next Wednesday, and then early February we'll, we'll be... Uh, putting up another one on on CRISPR, uh, which is the gene editing uh, method du jour. So, um, yeah, we got we got three shows coming up real quick, and, and we're going to get back on a, a, a regular schedule. So, Great. What else is going on in the network, Nathan? Uh, we continue to have a steady stream of interviews on Christian Humanist Profiles, uh, you know, by all means, tune in and see which of those strikes your interest. Uh, Danny Anderson and I uh, recently released our Spider-Man episode that we recorded in August. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're taking a cue from Book of Nature there. Uh, and so far, people have been giving it really good feedback, even though I don't remember anything that I said on that episode. Uh, it was a good episode. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Christian Feminist, uh, as we are recording, is releasing an episode tomorrow, and I have utterly forgotten what it is, and it's not on my screen. It's on Miss sure Fisher's will be Murder good. Mysteries. And that's why I don't remember it, because I've not watched that show. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anything cool. else, Michael, on the network? Not that I can think of. Oh, oh you know uh, what? There was a, a year in review City of Man. That's what I was going to say, and, uh... I'm. I think I'm finished with it. I can't remember if I finished it on my commute this morning or not. But a uh, very interesting discussion. Uh, you know, some predictable things on which they agree, whether it was a high or a low, and then some things that uh, they come to an accord on. So good little discussion. Poor Ed's been through so much this year. He's talking about it at the beginning of the episode, and and I could feel Coyle Neal holding himself back from being his typical Ernie. 
to Ed's Bert. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like the dynamic, yes, the dynamic of that show is Coil pokes Ed until Ed gets upset, and and you could you could feel Coil not doing that, <laughs> given the horrible things Ed went through this year and uh, out there in Santa Barbara. Well, let's talk pacifism. Uh, Todd, one of the first notable pacifists is Jesus, or maybe not. Uh, we all know about the turn the other cheek thing, but how does that command sit with Christ's order to his disciples to take a sword with them on their missionary journeys? Or why did the man who said he didn't come to bring peace but a sword, why did he reprimand Peter for defending him with his sword? Uh, can you sort out some of the contradictions and tensions there? So you really know how to make a guy feel welcome, huh? Uh, <laughs> you, you toss the <laughs> question at him right out of the gate. Well, uh, so, so here's the deal about that, Todd. There's, there's a reason. I was going to give it to Nathan. We try to give Bible questions to Nathan, but I wanted to make sure Nathan got the Hauerwas question later in the episode. <laughs> so so just because we're going in chronological order, you, you ended up stuck with Jesus. Oh, that's not a bad place to be. Um, yes, Todd, you're stuck with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, um... So, yeah, so I, a couple of things to start, I, I, I think, um, you know, the uh, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn him, uh, turn the, to him the other also. That verse is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, of course. It comes right on the heels of, you've heard it said, uh, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it's followed with some interesting things. If anyone wants to sue you take uh, and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Uh, so in order to hear that uh, turn the other cheek phrase, we've got to hear it in, in that particular context. Um, I think it's interesting to question whether that particular phrase is strictly about violence or if it's is really about something else um it's interesting that the in at least matthew's account uh it's the right cheek that is given reference to um and if you think about it how do you get hit you know slapped on the right cheek someone's either got to do it with the left hand or with the back of the right and so there are some commentators that that argue i think pretty convincingly that what's going on here is an intensified insult uh, a backhanded, uh, uh, you know, a, a backhanded slap as opposed to a, uh, as opposed to a forehanded slap, if you will. Um, and the rabbinic tradition bears this out um, in that a, a forward slap, I guess, if you want to put it that way, um, is 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 to be fined or penalized. Uh, with with a fine of of some 200 zoos. I don't know what a zoos is. I think it's like half of the half shekel tax or something like that. Uh, and a backhand slap earns you a fine of 400. Um, and there's another place in 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 the same uh, in the same documents that that state that the excess penalty is because uh, it's a blow not of pain but of public shame. Um, and so I don't know. I don't know about this. Is that is it about violence or is it about insults that you need to bear with patience? Um, certainly, that muddies the water if we're wanting to uh, refer to this passage as one that is for absolute pacifism. Um, what seems to be taught is is uh, not to give retaliation of injustice for injustice. 
which would square with, with other texts that we see. Um, about the swords, that, that, that is a, a, a very interesting question as well uh, to, to put into an already muddy pool. Um, you know, I didn't come bring, to bring peace, but a sword, I don't think that's really about swords. It's about the division that comes when Christ is present, uh, that you're either for him or against him, I guess, as it were. Um, but uh, the, the, uh, the two swords question, or the purchasing of swords question is, is, is certainly interesting. That's in the, in the garden uh, where that, that verse uh, appears in Luke. Um, I sent you out with purse and bag and sandals. You did not lack anything, did you? And his disciples said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now let him who has a purse take it along, likewise also a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one. Um, what seems to be going on here, as I read it anyway, is, uh, look, we're in the Passion Week. We're at the, uh, the beginning, as it were, of what is going to be a chaotic period for the disciples. Um, it seems to me this does tend to argue that at least swords for protection against others seems okay. Um, uh, you know, the foot and mouth Peter, you know, do something stupid. Peter, uh, you know, is, is, is the one who's held to be the one who slices the ear of Malchus off. Um, you know, that's that clearly, you know, and Christ is, is um, uh, dismissive of that of that action and, and says enough of this stuff uh, and heals and heals uh, heals Malchus there. Um, it seems like that was an inappropriate use of that sword to me, but I don't think it necessarily proscribes uh, swords for self-defense. If you put it together with the purchase of swords, I don't know. Um yeah, is it is I, I don't think these I don't think these necessarily tell us um, that Christ was absolutely against any form of of use of violence in defensive means at least. I don't know. What do y'all think? Well, I mean, when you ask this question of, you know, four theologians, you're gonna get five opinions. At least. Uh, so you know, I'd, just to present, you know, some of the counter arguments to that, you know, there are some theological traditions uh, that don't necessarily go to the sayings of Jesus so much to so much as to his conduct as Messiah mm. uh, to point to the Christian ethic of violence. In other words, uh, Jesus, rather than raising up an army uh, and driving the Romans out of Palestine, uh, rather than you know protecting his disciples from harm at the hands of persecutors, uh, chooses instead to receive evil rather than to do evil. Uh, you know, this is, you know, the, the argument of someone like Stan Hauerwas, who we'll talk about later. Uh, Richard Hayes certainly points this direction. Uh, you know, the, as far as the question of the self-defense, I mean, to use the modern term, uh, again, this is one where uh, if you look at martyrdom as being exclusively or even mostly a verbal phenomenon where in order to be a martyr, someone has to demand that you verbally renounce, uh, then self-defense becomes a lot less of a problem ethically. Whereas if you talk about, you know, martyrdom as bearing witness in a more holistic sense to, you know, responding to violent threats the way that Jesus did, then it becomes more of a problem to 
do violence to another uh, to defend the self because it's not something Christ would have done. Uh, now, as far as that goes, we're going to talk about our own positions a little bit later. Uh, but, you know, those are some of the possibilities that are at, that are at stake when we talk about the ethics of Jesus in particular. M- Michael, is there anything else that you want to add to that? No, I, 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 I'm troubled by both sets of passages. Do, do you know hmm. what I mean? Like this, this is one of those things where every time I think I've got a handle on it, it slips away from me. I, I got in an argument on Twitter. It wasn't really an argument. We were fairly civil uh, uh, with a friend who said there was no reason for a Christian ever to own a gun. And now I've never fired a gun. I don't own a gun. I don't like guns. If I could go back in time, I would probably keep guns from being invented. But I have a hard time saying there's no reason for a Christian ever to own one when Jesus has that commandment about swords. So, um, I don't know. As usual, Jesus continues to confound my expectations. <laughs> now, now, sometimes, yeah, sometimes when I'm trolling people and they cite that verse about the, you know, go get a sword and Peter says we have two and Jesus says that's enough, I say... Well, I mean, I'd be happy with that being our just war ethic. You know, we need to have two swords, and all of the Christians in the world have to share those two. <laughs> oh, for so, crying out loud. if if you want to kill somebody, you got to wait for the Christian in South Korea to get done with it, and then you know, sign up on the list. It's about three hundred fifty thousand long, and uh, when it comes your turn to use the sword, you can. Maybe just two swords for every twelve people, <laughs> which is that, probably that, probably about the uh, about the gun ownership rate uh, worldwide. <laughs> Well, let's talk about Henry David Thoreau's essay, Civil Disobedience. Uh, It's a big influence on some of the other people we'll talk about. It's a long essay. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that I don't think is relevant to us. He makes some specific moral commitments that lead him to be very briefly imprisoned in 1846. I'm more interested in the way that Thoreau recommends we behave when we live in an unjust society. Nathan, uh, what does he say to do? Well, first of all, this text is fascinating because a libertarian and a socialist could quote it approvingly. Isn't it uh, funny? Talk about I, confounding expectations. Yes, indeed. Um, and the other strange thing about it is that, you know, when I went over it prepping for this uh, podcast, I didn't see any explicit disavowal of armed force. In fact, there's a couple places where he implies that, you know, along the tradition of, you know, Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, it might be the duty of a free people to rise up against the government. But what people most focus on when they talk about this uh, treatise, and rightly so, uh, is his treatment of taxation as a point of contact with government authority. One of the things that Thoreau is not impressed with is the way that people talk about slavery in the South and the Mexican War in his period, Uh, people would say, you know, if someone told me to march with the army, I wouldn't do it. If someone told me to, you know, return a runaway slave, I wouldn't do it. But his retort is every time you pay taxes uh, that pay for the officer corps, that pay for, you know, the system of roads that allows the commercial system that exploits slave labor, so on and so forth, you are effectively acting as part of the system. So, I mean, a Really, I mean, Thoreau is the root of a modern ethics of complicity. Uh, So if you've run into people who say that you need to shop ethical, uh, that you need to, you know, deal only with 
businesses that are ethical. I mean, the roots are really here in, in Thoreau's resistance to civil government, as I call it, or civil disobedience, as most people call it. And his appeal, really, uh, and this is what makes him such an interesting counterpart to Gandhi and King, is supremely individualistic. Uh, you know, there's very little sense here that, you know, someone should attempt to organize other people. Instead, what he says, uh, and I mean, every time I read it, I always think of Alice's Restaurant because I, I knew Arlo Guthrie long before I knew Henry David Thoreau. Uh, but if just one person would refuse to pay their taxes, they might call him nuts. And if two people refuse to pay their taxes at the same time, no, I won't, I won't do Alice's <laughs> Restaurant in its totality here. It's a half hour. But, um, you know, he says that, you know, if enough people act like men, uh, act like true individuals, then the government authorities will not be able to sustain unjust wars, unjust practices like slavery, so on and so forth. So it is a, like I said, this is where it starts sounding like a libertarian text. If enough individuals would live as individuals, then the government wouldn't be able to do the terrible things that the government does. Now, in the interest of, you know, not eating up too many minutes of our podcast talking about Henry David Thoreau, I'm going to call that my summary of the high points and kind of lateral it over to you, Michael. Are there any other passages of this text that are going to be relevant as we continue? I don't know that, uh, as we continue, but I, I do think it's interesting how much Thoreau ties this into masculinity, that there's something effeminate to him about not standing up for your principles this way mm. uh, and that, that's typical of of the american renaissance i mean emerson's always talking about masculinity in that same way but i just think that's interesting given um given the reputation that pacifism has do, do you know that, oh sure and, and when i used to teach this i mean that's one thing that i used to bring up that you know the 21st century story is that you go off to paris island marine boot camp to become a man and for Thoreau, Paris Island is precisely where you become not a man. Right. Although, I mean, he's not so much against the war as he's against the Mexican-American War. He, he, he doesn't come off to me as being a total pacifist here. No, but he does talk about the Navy Yard as a place where men stop being men early in the essay. Yeah. I would ask him a question, though, which is he says... Uh, he doesn't like the Mexican-American War. He doesn't like slavery. He's not going to give his money. Uh, at what point is he? Do, do you know what I mean? I, I don't see how the government is ever going to not do anything I don't like. So should I just never pay my taxes? Or is there a critical mass that has to be reached? I mean, slavery is such a giant evil. Uh, and then the, the uh, what's it called? The Slave Return Act. What's that called? The Fugitive, Fugitive Slave Act. The Fugitive Slave Act. I mean, it's such an evil on top of an evil that I get, I, I get not wanting to be complicit in that. I get protesting that. I get doing everything you can do to stop it. But, I mean, really, where does it stop? Um, right. He does have that passage where he says, you know, he'll gladly pay taxes for roads and schools. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I mean, you know, the tax man does not differentiate. The tax man takes your money and then the government decides how that money gets spent. Right, it reminds me when I smoked cigarettes, my mother would sometimes give me $20 when I left her house, and she'd say, don't spend this on cigarettes. Well, okay, <laughs> I'll just put that in the bank and use other money to buy cigarettes. 
Or, or like how Planned Parenthood gets money from the government, but they can't spend it on abortions. Uh, yeah, okay. Because mm. that's how money works. So, I, I mean, really, at what point are you not complicit? Or, or at what point do you, do you get to where you don't care about being complicit? Hmm. I have no idea. No. I, <laughs> and, and honestly, I mean, you know, that is one of those places where, I mean... I usually keep my mouth shut just because I don't like getting yelled at on social media. But I mean, those are often the questions that run through my mind when, you know, the grand social media protests are happening. It's like, okay, you know, you're protesting this one, but 10 minutes ago you weren't protesting this other thing. And 10 minutes from now you won't be protesting this other thing. Um, Which, you know, my solution to that is, you know, let each act according to her or his conscience. Hmm. Uh, but that doesn't play well on social media, so. <laughs> well, one of the most strident voices for nonviolence in modern Christianity is the Catholic socialist Dorothy Day. You might call her a socialist. You might call her an anarchist. You might just call her Dorothy Day. Um, we read her essay, Our Country Passes from Undeclared War to Declared War. She wrote that in early 1942. If there's a modern war that most people can agree was just, it's World War II. Why is it, Todd, that Day and her fellow Catholic workers refused to participate in that war? And what did they do instead? Well, um, and I, I hesitate to call her Dottie Day, you know, in the grand tradition yes. of, uh, <laughs> of, I'm not of sure. Dr. Gilmore. Um, but, uh, but... Jack Derrida? <laughs> exactly. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yeah. And, Bill, and, and don't forget Bill Shakespeare and Fritz Nietzsche. Uh, uh, indeed. indeed. Fritz. Um, well, just just a, a tiny word of background. I mean, so so she, together with a, a Frenchman by the name of Marin, uh, are the ones who founded this Catholic Worker uh, newspaper. Um, and he's he actually is a very interesting person. Um, just poking around a little bit in his life, um, in some ways, he's the ideal, ideological force behind a lot of what the Catholic Workers have sought to do. He's kind of a Wendell Berry type. I mean, in that. Uh, believing in the you know in the supremacy of sort of individual responsibility definitely has a back to the land kind of agrarian ethic, um, and a belief in the need for communities to center uh, themselves around discussion for achieving clarity in thought and right action and so forth. Um, so so Dorothy Day and he started this Catholic worker movement, which advocates for those ideals and, and continues to this day. Um, there's something like 250 uh, Catholic worker houses or farms throughout the world, although mostly in the U.S. Um, and through them, they're primarily seeking to feed and serve the poor and, and live lives as they see it that co- correspond to Jesus' social teachings. Um, Central, really, to their ethic, as as you've noted, and as as this this uh, this particular letter or essay describes, is pacifism. Um, and central, or the most the most significant uh, foundation for that, is their belief that uh, they ought not to be involved in anything that breaks the law of love. Uh, or uh, the love of neighbor, the love of enemies, indeed, either or. Um, Their statement is that to participate in, uh, and by participation, participation goes goes pretty pretty far and wide uh, for some of them. 
um, in terms of how one actually participates in war. I mean, not only is she arguing that you oughtn't to be a, a soldier, um, but there are uh, there are those she addresses who would say that there are other ways of co collaborating or cooperating with the government that 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 uh, that cause you to participate in in war making. Um, they uh, advocated for prayer and prophecy, if you will, prophesying, uh, speaking the words of Christ. Uh, they didn't advocate for any real subversive activity um, per se, but instead, uh, she writes at one place, we are at war, a declared war with Japan, Germany, and Italy, but we still can repeat Christ's words each day, holding them close in our hearts, each month printing them in the paper. Uh, that is to be a constant reminder of the love your eth enemies ethic, and if you will, to perhaps shame people who claim to be Christian but are participating in ways that, that they would see as, as problematic. Um, so their key actions that they call for are continually speaking, continually speaking of the gospel of peace and prayer prayer against the war and so forth but also works of mercy which is which is kind of interesting um, they do urge the associates of the catholic workers to care for the sick and the wounded uh, to growing food for the hungry and to continue all their works of mercy in the catholic worker houses and farms that that were present um, she does note interestingly that there are those among them who are going to disagree about how much collaboration should be allowed um, uh, with the government um, and for charity among those who see things differently, uh, as it were. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a short little piece. It's an interesting, uh, certainly an interesting one. She seems to, to uh, you know, lie right along with, uh, with Gandhi, with King, in terms of some of the things that are said, particularly about the, the witness to Christ's peace. Uh, or the witness to an ethic of peace uh, being being central for them. Nathan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the big distinction, uh, really a couple of them, you know, that I see between Thoreau and, and Dorothy Day, uh, one of them obviously is that Day very explicitly roots her activism in a Catholic Christianity, one with very deep uh, historical precedents and, you know, calling... Christians particularly, back to an old tradition of non-violence, non-resistance, non-participation in war, one that we can trace through the monastic movement, through a lot of the patristic writings, so on and so forth. Whereas Thoreau, I mean, is a far more, um, for lack of a better term, you know, enlightenment-flavored appeal to a sort of universal reason and an individualism and so on and so forth. Uh, so, I mean, for that reason... Uh, Dorothy Day's message is a lot less susceptible to the wild ideological fluctuations that you see with Thoreau, where you could have mm -hmm. a socialist quoting him or a, you know, libertarian quoting him. Uh, this is, you know, pretty straightforward, you know, Catholic social teaching. Uh, this is a sense that, you know, the allegiance that a nation demands is going to be in direct conflict with the allegiance that the body of Christ on earth demands and therefore, you know, one of the two has got to give. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, for that reason, uh, you know, she's a lot less malleable, I think, than Thoreau is. Uh, and, you know, interesting in her own way precisely for that 
Um, I don't want to call it, you know, inflexibility, uh, but I'd say that stoutness of conviction. Hmm. Uh, Michael, I mean, what else is there to say about this? Well, I would say the other big difference between her and Thoreau is that his vision is radically individualist. This is about personal purity for him, whereas I think she has something much more communal and much more positive. It's not just um, stop paying your taxes. It's here, be a patriot in these particular ways. And I'm I'm especially interested in her care for the sick and the wounded, because I Mm. bet there were people who said that if you serve in the hospitals and help these wounded soldiers, you're complicit in the war. And I like I like that Mm. I like that her fear of complicity stops when there are uh, non-abstract, actual, concrete human beings there who are suffering and need her. Hmm. That fits in very well with what I know about Dorothy Day. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm sure that, um, and again, it's interesting where that where that comes in the essay. This, you know, towards towards the end there, um, she's clearly got to be pointing to those who would go serve with the nurses. Or uh, you know, and 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 whatnot, and then you know, on the end of it, she sort of says, "Now you know, let's not bicker amongst ourselves, you know, about this. If one's conscience leads you to seek to seek to serve in that way." But yeah, but here's the things we all agree on: prayer, fasting, works right. of mercy. Yeah, she's the mm-hmm. best. Well, in this country, the most famous person associated with nonviolent resistance is certainly Martin Luther King Jr. In his autobiography, Stride Toward Freedom, he has a chapter where he talks about the process that led him to believe in nonviolence. Nathan, can you trace that journey? Yeah, and I'm probably going to get it wrong, so I'll I'll confess that up front, uh, simply because he is, his list of influences maps pretty nicely onto the same list of influences that Stan Hauerwast writes about a lot, so if I start talking about... uh, parts of the story that are clearly not Kings. What it means is that I'm confusing him and Stan Hauerwas. So I'll just get that out of the way first. So when I became, when I, when I became a professor at Duke Divinity School. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully I won't go that far. King talks about his early uh, intellectual exploration as very heavily influenced by uh, the American Protestant theologian, Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, the theology for the social gospel uh, a Christian theology for the present social crisis, books of that sort. Uh, and he said that, you know, the strong connection between the gospel of Christ and a vision of that gospel that extends beyond the atomized individual into the social world was definitely appealing. Uh, unfortunately, as King tells the story, the optimism uh, that drives Rauschenbusch ultimately just wasn't tenable. He thought that, you know, with the right kind of social adjustments uh that basically you know the the social sins that plague us could basically be eliminated so he ends up you know taking a look at the critique of Karl Marx ultimately he can't go all the way with Karl Marx because of his materialism his atheism and ultimately the totalitarianism that he sees uh you know in the regimes of Lenin Stalin Mao so on and so forth Uh, which in interesting ways, you know, separates him from uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who ended up being a fairly vocal supporter of the Stalin regime. Uh, So then he talks, you know, at some length about, you know, his his explorations in moral philosophy. Uh, You know, he finds that, you know, the Enlightenment uh, 
ethics of, you know, a Rousseau and a Kant and, a, and those sorts of writers, you know, find a pretty scathing critique uh, in Nietzsche's genealogy of morals. So, I mean, again, he finds that unsatisfying until he tells a story of going to a public lecture uh, by a Protestant pastor who starts to mention uh, not a Protestant theologian, but Mahatma Gandhi. And he says that, you know, when he encounters Gandhi, he realizes that here is someone who spiritually, if not confessionally, has a sense of this complex relationship between the limited but real possibilities of direct action and then the importance of a spiritual centering that goes along with it. And he says that this is a system that, unlike the pacifism of a Rauschenbusch uh, or the sort of moral universalism of the Enlightenment, uh, can actually stand in the face of Reinhold Niebuhr's theological realism, uh, and that, you know, ultimately, because it has a vision of history, but it's not one that is simply and, you know, monodirectionally progressive, uh, it can actually account for the real political possibilities inherent in nonviolent action uh, without assuming that people are suddenly going to start being nice to each other because their ideas are better. Uh, so, I mean, you know, Dr. King's journey through all of that, you know, leads him uh, to shape the civil rights movement as he did, to become its voice as he did. Uh, and you can really recognize, you know, some of those intellectual struggles in the ways that uh, Dr. King pursued black liberation, uh, as opposed, for instance, to the separatism of Marcus Garvey or the, you know, the more localized but nonetheless separatist approach of Malcolm X uh, or other such people there in the mid-20th century. Uh, again, Michael, I'm, I'm trying to keep this relatively brief so that, you know, we save some time for some of our other inquiries. So are there any other parts of that uh, Martin Luther King biography that you'd want to highlight here? How about you, Todd? Uh well, so the, the 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 way that I'm most familiar is, is probably true of many people. The way that I'm most familiar with um, with Martin Luther King Jr. is his uh, is his letter uh, letter from the Birmingham jail, and I, I you know I found in reading this particular essay, you see, of course, a lot of the roots, a lot of the same thoughts that uh, exist in that letter, um, which is as I tell my students when we when we teach it. Um, it's 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 one of the finest pieces of argumentative prose that 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 I've I've read. Um, I think it's probably the greatest piece of rhetoric ever written in English. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 my my feeling as well. Um, and in in part because of the depth of and the completeness of and the coherence of the message that he has for people who are protesting injustice, who he's calling to protests of uh, of injustice to do so in a way that doesn't breed more injustice. And I think, you know, some of the, the, the roots of those ideas are, are what, we, what we find in this particular essay as well. Um, so, you know, he brought full circle um, when, when, you know, the rubber met the road, I guess, in, in Birmingham, as it were. Um, uh, you know, many of, these, many of these concepts. And, you know, as we'll see in, in a minute, you know, much of, of what he says in that letter concerning the right practice of protest comes right out of Gandhi. Um, so, yeah, my two thoughts. 
Well, let's move on to Gandhi then. Um, this episode's going to drop on the 70th anniversary of his death. Uh, we'll talk about his most famous speech. It's quite short. It's called the Quit India speech. It was delivered in August 1942. Um, Todd, how does Gandhi's concept of ahimsa, I think I'm, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, ahimsa, hmm. relate to Christian explorations of nonviolence and pacifism? Yeah, this this speech is is um, is really it's interesting. Um, it is um, just to put it into its own context. I mean, Gandhi there is speaking as a member of the Indian National Congress, which we shouldn't think of as a legislative body per se. It's a political party. Right? It's a party for the the native Indians under the crown rule of Britain, um, and he's speaking to a gathering. Um, where he is uh, advocating for the voluntary or the the calls to Britain to voluntarily quit India, uh, quit being used in the British sense, not not in the American sense, I guess. Um, perhaps one of the precipitating events of this speech was the fact that Indians, as a crown territory of the British, were brought into World War II as combatants without any sort of consultation. Who would expect consultation of a, uh, of a of a British possession? I guess, um, but uh, and and it, it should be noted that it wasn't that the British conscripted Indians to serve; rather, they called for volunteers, and they got a huge volunteer army of, of some two point five million Indians, uh, as I read, um, to to fight in the war. But nevertheless, this was a war that was forced upon the Indian uh, the Indian population, and. In this speech, um, what he is doing is trying to rally the people to to this call, to this call for Britain to 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 leave. Um, ahimsa means no harm, literally means no harm, um, and this is a principle which underlies many southeastern, uh, south uh, south and southeastern Asian religions, not just Hin Hinduism. Um, it's an advocacy for no violence whatsoever, no harm to any living thing, not just to human beings. And what's really interesting um, about this is it's not just violent action that is proscribed, but violence in terms of words and thoughts. Um, related, a related concept to Ahimsa is, is one that is, I think, pronounced satyagraha, although I don't know if that's correct, I don't recall, um, which is insistence on truth or uh, binding oneself to truth. Um, in people's pursuit of absolutely peaceful action and thought, um, one must insist on truthful inquiry and speech, on consistency in living, on never using violence, and above all, doing all things with and this is really interesting to me, doing all things with a skeptical willingness to scrutinize oneself, which is really where I see hmm. where, where I see King uh, King's uh, letter to the Birmingham from the Birmingham jail, um, where he calls specifically for that. He says introspection, self-examination is where we have to start in this protest. So. The consistency of this notion of ahimsa, and I'll incorporate satyagraha as well with Christian teaching, I, I think they fit quite reasonably well. Um, there is some debate, interestingly, among Hindu scholars as to whether ahimsa prohibits any sort of self-defense, 
which is much like the, 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 the debate among Christians with regard to total pacifism or not. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I see real agreement in the point of view taken with regard to self here. Um, you know, the, the principle of self-scrutiny is part and parcel with the, you know, remove the log in your own eye uh, point of view. Um, living at all times, as far as it depends on you, peaceably among men, as we see in the epistles, also comes to mind. Um, and when we, when we incorporate the fact that ahimsa that, that Gandhi is relying upon here um, involves not only just action, but peace of thought and word, um, I, I hear Christ on the, on the mount you know, preaching concerning the true nature of murder, the true nature of adultery, and so forth, um, as involving thought and not just action. Um, in the last paragraph of this speech, uh, Gandhi addresses this. He, he addresses the attitude of his fellow Indians with respect to the British and calls them out for their hatred um, that he sees. Uh, he says it's dangerous. I mean, largely there he's talking about it being dangerous because it's, causing, it's going to cause you to seek other bedfellows like the Japanese. Um, but nevertheless, he's, he's, he's calling for it, not just a piece of, of action, but a piece of, of, of thought and a piece of attitude. Um, and again, I, I, it seems to me that there's a lot of resonance there between, between those ideas and, and Christian ones. Nathan, anything to add to that? Uh, not especially. I mean, you know, I, I like uh, Todd's emphasis on the fact that, you know, King uh, can locate certain things in, in Gandhi's thought uh, that resonate with Christian teachings without becoming uh, the sort of stereotype of, you know, the uh, post-doctrinal Christian that'll just kind of take cafeteria-style ideas from anywhere. I mean, these are locations of genuine resonance between the two ethical traditions. So, I mean, I like the way that Todd uh, highlighted that. Me too. Well, Nathan, given your well-known fanboyism for Stanley Howard Ross, <laughs> would be remiss, <laughs> remiss not to discuss his work. You had us read a recent essay of his that is against just war. So tell us, according to Howard Ross, why might pacifism be more realistic in the Niberian sense than just war is? And what sort of damage does war do to the soul of the American citizen? Well, first of all, the title of the piece is a long-running uh, tradition of Howard Ross essays of inverting conventional wisdom in the title and then making theological points as he jumbles up the ideas. You know, the Perhaps the best known of these is an essay that he published back in the late 90s called Why Homosexuals as a Group Are More Moral Than Christians as a Group. Uh, and, you know, the essay has absolutely nothing to do with sex. What it has to do with is the fact that, uh, you know, there was a dispute there in the 90s that, you know, in some corners continues about whether uh, gays and lesbians should be able to serve in the military. And his very tongue-in-cheek argument in that essay is if the military really knew what they were doing, they would recruit all the gays they can, but prevent Christians from serving because we've got this just war thing going on. Same thing's going on in this essay. Uh, you know, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, it's nice to have pacifists around because they're sort of moral absolutists and, you know, they remind us that there are high aspirations. But when it comes to the actual work of running a government, protecting a people, keeping peace in the world... 
Uh, you need people who are willing to kill other people. And what he brings up, sort of the central concern of this essay, and then I'll, I'll take a step back and talk about, you know, a broader picture of war and his thought, is that, you know, the just war tradition in people like Augustine and Aquinas presumes that there is a counter voice in the world called the church. Uh, when in the modern period the church becomes almost entirely privatized so that it has no political substance of its own, but it's basically a collection of willing individuals, to use John Locke's language, uh, then basically you are relying on people who have a lot to gain uh, by successfully prosecuting wars and successfully humiliating enemies, trusting those people to restrain themselves, which he says that ultimately... Uh, is less realistic than just telling Christians not to kill people. Uh, at the very least, the Christians have a sense that Jesus doesn't like killing, no matter what the reason's for, to quote the theologian John Prine. Uh, but when you talk about just war without that counterbalancing voice, that counterbalancing political reality, uh, you're basically just you know telling nation states to be nice to each other. And then he goes on from there to rehearse one of the points that he has developed over the course of his career, really since the late 60s, that warfare in the modern democratic society actually stands to be worse than wars prosecuted by autocratic regimes, precisely because in democracies where you don't have an established church and where you don't have a monarch who is, in some sense, divinely appointed, uh, the military themselves become a kind of religious sacrifice. And he goes to different, you know, texts from the 19th century in America, especially surrounding the Civil War, culminating with the Gettysburg Address, which, you know, if you learn that in school as I did, uh, it is an explicitly religious speech. Uh, but the people whose blood is shed for the cause of freedom uh, is not the blood of Jesus, but it is the blood of American soldiers. And so the ethical mandate uh, becomes not to cease this war until the highest ideals for which they might have died are realized. Well, when you absolutize war that way, it becomes a moral failing not to kill more of your enemies, not to demand absolute surrender, not to continue the war until there is no more war. And as we've seen in the 20th century, in the wake of the Civil War, uh, that has led to, you know, conflicts that, certainly for technological reasons, but also for those theological reasons, have become far more totalizing than anything that the Thirty Years' War could have dreamed up. You know, those wars that were so famously brutal that we had to have Descartes come along and tell us different ways to be rational so as not to enter those religious wars. In, in Hauerwas's career more broadly... Uh, he has tended to take what I call uh, a dramatic roles theory. That's not his language, it's mine. Uh, but it's a notion that in the seculum, in the period between Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1 and the return of Jesus that you know we see in 1 Thess Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, Revelation, so on and so forth, there is a genuine place in the world for armed resistance to evil, uh, and there is a genuine place for Christian witness to a kingdom that is not governed by the armed resistance to evil, and that Christians should at the same time 
be obedient to those armed authorities, but should not themselves take on the roles of the armed authorities. And that's one of the things in this little essay that he digs into. So as Michael noted, I mean, you know, I was taught my theology and philosophy by one of Stan Hauerwas's grad students named Phil Kennison. Uh, so if you ask me about Stan Hauerwas, you're not going to get an unbiased or unattached vision of him. <laughs> uh, I mean, Todd, as you read this little essay from Hauerwas, I mean, what were your thoughts about his argument? Well, I, so I, 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 I'm sympathetic in, in many ways. Um, you know, I, I do think that one of the challenges for, um, for I guess, a, a, wooden, a wooden reliance upon a just war ethic as justification for, for practicing war um, you know, one of the one of the difficulties is that war is 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 a horrible thing, right? And and when one when when one looks at um, war with a realistic lens, if you will, um, you do see uh, you do see the horrific nature of it. Um, you know, I, I wonder sometimes. And as I as I as I you know, as I looked at this, I, I'm I'm thinking um, about the fact that we're a hundred years past what really I think was the most awful war that that humanity has seen, um, the Great War, the world you know World War One. Um, I, I sometimes wonder if we're too far removed from that to recognize how awful war can be. Because even you know World War II, um, you know, didn't quite have some of the same markers, and you know one could argue perhaps in some segments of Vietnam, Vietnam was as uh, as ugly as World War One. Although I'm not quite so sure after having read a fair bit of uh, coverage of, of World War One in the last couple of years. Um, you know, we war now is something that is practiced in a way that enables one to be almost entirely divorced from the actual products of war. Um, and, you know, so, so when he speaks about what war really is and how, and how difficult it is, therefore, to justify Christian participation, I, I, I can sympathize. I don't go where he goes, uh, I, but but uh, but I but I think he's, he's certainly a voice worth listening to. And what's interesting is, I mean, he says that even if war becomes less horrific, mm -hmm. his objection still stands, not because war is terrible, although he grants that it is, mm -hmm. but that it becomes a counter gospel, uh, so that you know it becomes something that takes on the language of salvation, right? Uh, we have to finish yeah. this war or else there will be no freedom. We have to save these people from this or that situation, right? Right. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, he does most of his heavy lifting, if you will, not during the Vietnam War, but during the Gulf War and the Iraq mm -hmm. War and the Afghanistan War. Uh, so, I mean, in that sense, I, I think he is a thinker. Uh, the same way that Dorothy Day is a thinker for World War II and Dr. King for the Vietnam era, he is a thinker for that this era that we're in of remote war. I think mm -hmm. that's true, and I and I and I do appreciate his um, 
his also calling out the 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 sort of notion of the sacrifice given for the country or the sac you know that that the salvation through sacrifice of the soldier who who loses his life right the greatest sacrifice yeah 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 um and 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 really calling out that point of view and saying you know do we really want to go there well i want to um I want to talk about two kind of general questions here at the end, one macro and one micro, as it were. Uh, the first one, where do you guys stand on war? Do you subscribe to some version of the just war theory? Are you a total pacifist? What sorts of things do we become complicit in when we adopt either viewpoint? So we'll start with Todd. Uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm not a total pacifist. Um, I, I do believe that there is such a thing as, a, I, you know, just war is difficult. The word just, the word good war is even difficult. Um, but I, 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 I can't say uh, definitively that it's never appropriate to go to war. Um, I think we have in even you know, up until this day, uh, as a nation, been gravely guilty of going in places to um, to accomplish ends that we want to see accomplished by use of military force. I think it's abhorrent. Um, uh, but I, I, I can't say that if there were another Holocaust, that it would be inappropriate for us to intervene. Um, so even though I, in general, am, am completely opposed to interventionist war policy, um, I, I, I can see cases in which it really would be, it, in my opinion, the right thing to do. Um, if we are completely a passive society in which we do not engage at all in the rescue of those who can't defend themselves, um, I, I can buy an argument that says we're somewhat complicit in the, um, in the acts of the oppressive state. Um, but if we go in willy-nilly and decide we're going to, for instance, take out Muammar Gaddafi, um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that, you know, my gut says that wasn't an appropriate choice. Even um, though a, a Holocaust of sorts was going was, on there, was there? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, that's what the that's what we were told. That's anyway. what we were told, and I, you know, so you know, it gets it gets tricky. But it seems to me that we're just so willing to throw our force out there um, that uh, you know that we are guilty on the other side of the ledger. Um, yeah, war is not, you know. It would be it would be to me easier to hold to a complete pacifist line, just you know, and just say, yeah, I just think it's always wrong. But I I cannot escape the arguments that, um, uh, not completely escape the arguments that say that there are times when we ought to. Um, I don't know. So I, you know, I I you know I don't I don't go through the list of Aquinas's points and say, yeah, 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 I mean, well, I should say, I, I guess, I guess I do agree in principle with those ideas. It's the practice that's the most difficult, right? Um, uh, 
So I don't. I haven't really necessarily systematically thought through um, a full position on war. Uh, only so far as to say that I'm. I, I can't be a total pacifist, and that I do believe that that oftentimes governments intervene way too much in the affairs of other nations that we ought not to be um, at least using warfare to, um, to accomplish the ends that we see. Nathan, how far do you carry your wannabe anabaptism? <laughs> well, I, again, I've been pretty influenced by Stanley Hauerwas and people in that constellation of thought. So I tend to think of myself as a nonviolent advocate for just war. And here's what I mean by that. I think that, like I said before, there are certain roles that are divinely ordained for different groups of people. So I would say that, you know, the call, uh, and I don't say rules in the sense that, you know, I, I claim to have any kind of power to excommunicate, but I think that the calling for Christians is to bear witness to a way of life that lies beyond the ways of kings and wars. Uh, so, you know, for Christians to say, uh, well, we might have to go to war, otherwise God will not, you know, be with us. You know, I, I think that there are Christian martyrs who speak otherwise. Uh, and, you know, the, the the I can't remember what chapter it is in Daniel. I'm going to say Daniel 2, but I'm probably wrong. But, you know, the, the scene with, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, God has the ability to protect us, but even if not, we will remain faithful. That tends to be my response to how should Christians deal with violence in the world, okay? Now, with that said, I think that, you know, by existing as a community that practices that other way of life, that puts us in a position so that when governments attempt to turn wars into religious realities, we are in a position to say, you know, that is the worship of a false god. If you say that, you know, this war is somehow consecrating holy ground, as, as Abraham Lincoln said at Gettysburg, or if you say that soldiers are making the ultimate sacrifice, I think it falls to Christians to say, look, as a nation, as a king, as a magistrate, you have a certain duty to restrain evil in the world to punish crime, uh, even to protect those who cannot protect themselves. But as soon as you cross that line over into claiming salvation for yourself, you have become, in a fairly straightforward historical sense, like Caesar. Uh, you have become, you know, a being that is seizing and usurping prerogatives from God that belong to God alone. Now, what that means on a practical, you know, national security policy level isn't something that I can prescribe for every case. It's always going to be a matter of paying close attention to the details of this case and responding to this case and so on and so forth. But I would always say that Christian worship is always our alternative to the religion of warfare. Uh, to confess our sins is the alternative to think of the enemy as evil and ourselves as righteous to proclaim that Christ's kingdom is coming is the alternative to say to saying that we are going to make the world safe for freedom and democracy to say that you know we as Christians are called to suffer as Christ suffered is the alternative to saying we are called as Americans westerners whatever you want to call it 
to make sure that the savages get civilized. So, I mean, you know, as far as the calling goes, I think that the Christian has a different calling from the nation state. And I think that the nation state benefits from a church that is bold enough and visible enough and vocal enough to actually say the claims you are making are religious claims rather than military claims. Uh, and I just preached like a 10-minute sermon. I'm sorry, Michael. Uh, no, I'm afraid to go after that. My, my thoughts are not nearly <laughs> as thought out as that. <laughs> what I would say is I'm a just war person, but I think it's moot in the modern age because I don't think we'll ever have another just war. Hmm. Um, because I don't think anything where you drop bombs on civilian targets or anywhere where there might be civilians... I don't think that can possibly be a just war. And since I don't see us fighting a war where we go out on a battlefield uh, ever again, I am practically speaking a pacifist. But I think it does make a difference in terms of policing. Um, So, for example, I affirm the right and, and probably the responsibility of a police officer to stop somebody from killing somebody else. Uh, and, and because I affirm that right, I am also horrified and saddened when police overstep that right and use language associated with that right to defend uh, unjust things, if that makes sense. Am I beating around the bush enough? <laughs> so so because, I'm, because I'm just war, I think we should um, support the police and hold them accountable when they behave unjustly. And I, I think... Hmm. I think that matters. I, and and I'm, I'm not a total pacifist in that sense because I don't want a, I don't want a police force that's not able to, um, to to curve injustice. But uh, equally or even more so, I don't want a police force that itself curves injustice. Right, and I mm. think on on that front, Michael, I think the three of us agree. I think the zone of disagreement, and I think this has been the case, you know, for most of the church's history is a matter of pronouns, not of verbs. So when we say we have a responsibility to curb evil, you know, the Hauerwazian in me wants to say, well, I mean, who are we? You know, are we Americans? Are we Christians? Are we, you know, uh, we've got to define who's in that we group because the way that, you know, Hauerwas and the the traditions that he inherits and, of course, the folks who come after him imagine things, uh, the we that names the body of Christ, our main, and there I go again with the first person plural pronouns, <laughs> our main responsibility is to bear witness to a way of life that comes not from, you know, the fear of violence, but from a hope in a kingdom to come. And so, you know, there is a place in the world for them, the third person plural, to restrain evil, and our duty, first person plural, is to expose any idolatry that, you know, in so many cases historically has come to surround those kinds of actions. Hmm. It's interesting, too, to question, you know, I, I, I think as you think about, and as anyone really thinks about these these questions, the the thoughts, if one orders them from the sphere surrounding me to the sphere surrounding my house to the sphere surrounding my neighborhood to the sphere surrounding my county and so forth um, thinking about whether when it is right to to take violent action um, I, I, I you know I don't know that I've ever actually met anyone who says I should just 
allow myself to be beat up. You know, I should just allow my, you know, maybe they say, yeah, I allow my wallet to be taken. But um, I don't know anyone, and maybe it's just, an in, you know, my own lack of, of friends of this persuasion. But I don't know anyone that says, no, if your wife is being raped, you don't go and do everything you can to, you know, to kill the guy. <laughs> I don't know, you know. Um, it And, you know, if my neighbor's house is being robbed or if my neighbor is being physically attacked and I happen to have a gun, what do I do? I just sit back and do nothing? Well, if you're a pacifist, why do you have a gun? Well, <laughs> you shooting tin cans a, or something. But I have a baseball bat. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and what Michael poses there is precisely the question that you know the tradition that Hauerwas is part of, you right. know, poses is that in that scenario, how is it that you happen to have a gun? You know, I mean, very few of us just happen to find a gun in our pockets. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was there when I washed the pants. <laughs> <laughs> So here, here's what I'd say to your, your point earlier, Nathan. I think Christians can be police officers, and I think Christians can serve in the military, although the, the military in particular, because of what I said about um, there not being just wars anymore, I'd, I'd be careful. But I, I, do think, I do think it's the church's job to tell the people who are thinking of going into those professions, look, there are serious risks here, and risks not just about your body, but about your soul, mm-hmm. you know? There, there are there are things about being a police officer that can warp you without you even realizing you're being warped. And you know, it's our job to 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 give you the resistance to that that will allow you to do that very necessary social job in a in a just and godly way. Well, and I have to admit, I mean, I'll I'll make reference to I think the first interview I did with Stan Hauerwas on Christian Humanist Profiles. I, I pressed him on precisely that line of questioning, Michael, and to my surprise, I mean, he couldn't see me because we were just on an audio call, but my jaw dropped when he said this, but uh, I, he actually said, you know, a person can serve honorably as a soldier or a police officer, but, and I forget what he said after but, because I'm like, okay, is this Stan Hauerwas? <laughs> <laughs> What's the old line about a conservative a liberal who's been mugged by reality? Maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe Hauerwas got mugged that week. Could be, could be. Well, this show is going way over, so let's uh, let's <laughs> let's uh, talk about the micro level and see how fast we can do it. Uh, a few months ago, there was a lot of chatter about Antifa, a group that frequently uses violent tactics to disrupt far right rallies. The proponents say they're preventing violence. I think we can all agree that we don't like fascists. We would prefer that fascists not congregate in our streets. But is there room for Christians in a movement like Antifa, Nathan? I'll admit I am not impressed with Antifa. Uh, I actually got into an online dispute on Facebook with an Antifa partisan, or at least someone who claimed to be part of it. Uh, He referred to them as our brethren. Uh, And honestly, I mean, as as I pressed him on it, you know, I mean, he wanted me to be very pleased that, you know, Antifa agents, for lack of a better noun, were going around killing ISIS members in Syria and northern Iraq, and that, you know, because I approved of that, I should likewise approve of their inflicting violence on American Nazis. Uh, And, you know, my response to this guy, 
uh, was first of all, you know, I have no idea because this is the internet whether you are delusional or if you're actually a vigilante. Uh, but that's what Antifa is. Uh, you know, if, if we take, you know, St. Paul's words in Romans 13 seriously, you know, the responsibility to restrain evil in the world is an ordered and systemic institution. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I, I have to admit, I mean, even as someone, you know, who has a place in the way I see the world for just war, uh, I just don't see where Antifa fits into that picture. I mean, they are people who self-appoint them or who appoint themselves as the righteous in the world to go out and inflict violence on those they see as the wicked. Uh, in my mind, that's just not a good way to proceed. So, I mean, not unless I, you want other people proceeding that way too. And most of us don't. <laughs> so, uh, Todd, I mean, that's about all I've got to say about Antifa. Do you have anything to add on to that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just wholehearted agreement. I mean, I, I, I think they, the, the, one of the places where Antifa really falls short uh, in, in, the, in the words that we've been throwing around uh, all afternoon here is they're not particularly self-aware, uh, not particularly uh, uh, self-consistent with their own principles. Um, some of the more uh, fascist-leaning language that I've ever heard has come out of anti-fascist supposedly anti-fascist people um violence to prevent violence uh, uh you know I, I i i i have serious issues um they're also pretty anarchical uh anarchy doesn't seem to be a place uh, doesn't doesn't seem to be a um a point that christians ought to be advocating for um unless you're dorothy day uh, I, Anarchy? I don't think she'd go there. No, she does. Yeah, actually, in okay. in the long loneliness, but it's it's it, a but sort of anarchy an, that looks very much like small scale is socialism. It, is it more distributism though? I mean, that's, yeah, it is. Yeah. It, and, anarchy and I'm, can I'm mean for, a lot of things. I'm actually all for that. I actually, I actually think that's a, a coherent, reasonable point of view to take, and it's not anarchy in the sense that I I see out of well, I see out of Antifa. Um, right. Yeah, they they want the war of all against all. Right. I will say this for them. I, I read a story out of Charlottesville where it was a group of ministers counter protesting and supposedly I wasn't there, so I'm gonna I'm gonna couch my language. Um, supposedly the the far right protesters came at this group of ministers and uh, somebody in that group said the only reason they weren't beat within an inch of their life was that Antifa got between the two groups. That doesn't justify everything they do. It doesn't justify their manifesto if there is one. But I, I think, you know, if I were part of that group, I would be very thankful for them that day. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, depending on which media account you are reading, uh, they're either, you know, a nonviolent counter protest movement or they are an ISIS agent killing vigilante group. So, I guess I should couch my objection to them in, I believe this guy that, you know, this is how they imagine themselves. Uh, you know, it could be that I was fooled by someone who was a wannabe Antifa rather than a real Antifa. Well, and part of the problem with being anarchists is the, I mean, it's the same problem you get with Black Lives Matter. 
there's no leadership, so it's not like there's a president of Antifa you can go to who will keep everybody else in line with the group's mission. To some extent, if you say you belong to Antifa, you do belong to Antifa, and that makes it very difficult to evaluate them consistently. I mean, or if I've got that wrong, tell me, but I, th I think what I just said is accurate. Or to paraphrase the dude, what do you mean it's not fair? What kind of anarchist are you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, that was a good episode, guys. Thank you for uh, reading so much and talking so long. <laughs> Nathan, what are we doing next week? Uh, next week, we're going to take on uh, St. Paul's Letter to the Galatians. It'll be one of our Bible episodes, of course, and I'm looking forward to talking about that with uh, Michael and David. Well, thank you. In the, in the meantime, you can get in touch with us at... Um, what is our email address? TheChristianHumanist at gmail.com or our website is ChristianHumanist.org. We're also on Facebook. Uh, we'd love for you to like our page there. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you download podcasts. The Christian Humanist podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Until next time, for Nathan Gilmore, for Todd Pedler, for the absent David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>